You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 12, and we'll read together verses 41. Actually, let's read together verse, the middle of verse 36 through the end of verse 43, beginning in verse, middle of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men, rather than the approval of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are, are very grateful for your word and what you show us and teach us in it. And the prayer of that song is indeed our prayer, that you would be our vision and our guide. We recognize that you are our best thought by day and by night. And we pray that in your word and through your word, you would fix our hearts and attention and affection upon the person of your son, that you would be glorified in him and that he would be glorified in us. That is our prayer. And we pray that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide here this morning as we look at your word, and that you would be honored here in and amongst your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is probably no uh, temptation which is more universal to man than that of being tempted to, uh, to fear man rather than God, to be silent when we ought to speak, uh, to be like these Jews, to believe upon Christ, but then to be struck with fear and cowardice in, in the face of the possibility that we might be cast out or excommunicated from something. Uh, that is a universal temptation, and I would say that probably every Christian who is in this room can think of a time, probably more than one time in your life, maybe even a time in the last week, when you have been forced to be silent when you knew that you should speak up, when you had the opportunity to say something or to do something, but for the sake of those around you, because you feared them and maybe the consequences of that, instead you remain silent and you remain quiet. Uh, that is a universal temptation because there is something with which, in, with which we are all born that makes us inherent man-pleasers. We love to hear people say nice things about us. We love to hear people think nice things about us. We love to please other people, and we are driven to do that. And so when we become believers and then we are faced with the, the option of displeasing somebody because of our faith, more often, too often, I should say, I would say more often than not, but too often, we choose being silent when we should speak and folding and caving on our convictions rather than standing firm in them. And the text, the truth of the text that we are going to look at today has something to say about that. We are in John 12, and it's been a couple of weeks since we were looking at this passage, so I'll take just a couple of moments to sort of remind you of the context. John chapter 12 really brings us to the end of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, after all of his teaching, his preaching, his miracles, his acts of compassion, the response of the Jewish nation, not just the leadership, but also the populace in general, the response was marked by unbelief. They did not believe in him. 
And so John, at the end of this chapter, gives us not only a summary of their unbelief, a statement of their unbelief, but a theological explanation of their unbelief. Their unbelief was due to two things. Number one, their responsibility. They loved darkness rather than light, and so they would not believe. But at the very same time, we have the sovereignty of God working in that God as a judicial act of His judgment upon a people who had rejected Him and who had turned from the light, God had blinded their eyes and He had hardened their hearts so that they could not believe. So man would not and man could not. Both of those things are true because they are both going on together at the same time. And Isaiah quotes, or sorry, John quotes from two passages from the book of Isaiah. The first in verse 38, he quotes from Isaiah 53, Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Then he quotes in verse 40, Isaiah chapter 6. And those two quotations together, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6, those two quotations together show that the unbelief of the Jewish nation was two things. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. And number two, their unbelief and their blindness was a judicial act of God upon them for their unbelief. God is free to judge men and women however He will. And in this instance, God judged the men and women of Israel by blinding their eyes and hardening their hearts because they love darkness rather than light. And so now we come to the end of this, and we're tackling today verse 41 through verse 43. Verse 41 really sums up the uh, the section on unbelief, Isaiah describing their unbelief. Verse 41 sort of caps that, and I didn't want to deal with it last time because we ran out of time, and verse 41 is really a sermon in and of itself. And then in verses 42 and 43, Isaiah John describes the people who did believe. So verse 41, dealing with the unbelievers, in verse 42 and 43, dealing with some who did believe. Uh, We could divide it up this way. Verse 41 really describes the glory of Christ. And in verses 42 and 43, I wanted to say gutless cowards, but I chose instead a group of cowards. Gutless, though it may be true, might be a bit strong. But these are men who had believed, but did not have the spine to stand. So that will serve as our our outline for this morning. Uh, The glory of Christ and a group of gutless cowards. We could use both of those, actually. The glory of Christ and a group of gutless cowards. So let's first look at the glory of Christ in verse 41. John says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now there's a lot of he's and him's in that verse. So let me take the verse and I will read it and I will put in proper names where the pronouns are there so you can see what the him's and the he's refer to. And then I'll show you why those him's and he's refer to this person or these persons. Verse 41, These things Isaiah said because Isaiah saw... Jesus Christ's glory, and Isaiah spoke of Jesus Christ. Let's read it again. These things Isaiah said because Isaiah saw Jesus Christ's glory, and Isaiah spoke of Jesus Christ. Now that's who the he's and the hymns refer to. So when you get to verse 41, we read that Isaiah said these things, that is the two quotations, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. Isaiah said those things contained in those two quotations when Isaiah saw Jesus Christ and saw His glory. Now, if you are wondering who the him and the he refer to in verse 41, you kind of got to trace it back up through the passage, and you would finally arrive in verse 36, which says, These things Jesus spoke, and He, that is Jesus, went away, and hid Himself, that is Jesus, from them. But though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him, that is Jesus. And then Isaiah, John describes the unbelief, quotes Isaiah, and then says, Isaiah said these things when he saw Jesus Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ. So John is saying, he looks back, he's familiar with Isaiah. He looks back at the quotation from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6, 
and said, Isaiah said these things when Isaiah saw Jesus Christ. So let's take each of those quotations for just a minute and talk about how Isaiah saw Jesus Christ in each of those quotations. First of all would be in verse 38, the quotation from Isaiah 53. Now we are familiar with the context of Isaiah 53 and we've looked at it in recent weeks. This is the one who was stricken or smitten for the people of God. He is the one who was accursed, marred more than any other man. Isaiah 53 describes the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And so in that passage, we look at Isaiah 53 and we say, that is obviously a description of the Messiah, of the Jewish Messiah. This is obviously a description of Jesus Christ. Nobody else could fulfill that passage other than Jesus Christ. So we see in Isaiah 53 that Isaiah is describing Jesus. And Isaiah looked forward in time 700 years, and he saw, as it were, the sufferings, and he described the sufferings of the servant of God who was going to come and who was going to be pierced for our transgressions and wounded and stricken for our iniquities. The chastisement that we would deserve would fall upon him. Isaiah saw that, and he saw Jesus in that. Now, Isaiah didn't know that his name was Jesus, but he saw the divine Son. That's what John says. Isaiah said these things when he saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. Now, we see Jesus in Isaiah 53, but do we see the glory of God in Isaiah 53? I would suggest to you that we do. We see the glory of God in the cross of Christ. When we look upon what Jesus did on the cross, that is the glory of God. That is the the manifest representation of the nature and the character of God. His righteousness, His love, His justice, His His perfect purity is all on display at Calvary. So in the death of Christ, we see not only Jesus, but Isaiah also saw the glory of the Son of God. Because in His death, God is glorified. In His death, Jesus manifests His glory. The cross is a glory. Do you remember up in verse 28 when Jesus, as He was approaching the hour of His death, said in verse 28, Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The death of Christ is a glory to God and to God's name. What about Isaiah 6? Whom did Isaiah see in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah says, I I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips for I have seen what? Whom? The King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 6. He saw the glory of God which filled the earth. He saw the robe of his, the, the train of his robe which filled the temple and the foundations shook and that the sound of his voice, everything trembled and the angels gathered around him and sang, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts, the God Almighty. That was their singing. That was their chorus. This is an individual whom the angels worshiped and this is an individual who commissioned Isaiah to his office as prophet. And for the rest of the book, Isaiah says, the words that I speak to you are the words of Yahweh. These are Yahweh's words. I am a prophet of God and I speak on behalf of God because I have been commissioned by Yahweh. Now, who does John say that Isaiah saw? Isaiah said these things when he saw Jesus and spoke of His glory. You could not ask for a clearer passage where Jesus Christ is called Yahweh in your New Testament than the one that you have right here. When did Isaiah speak what he spoke? In Isaiah 6, 9-10, to John says, Isaiah said these things when he saw Jesus. Jesus is the one whose glory fills the earth. The second person, the divine person, the Son of God, He is the one whom Isaiah beheld, whose glory filled the earth, whose robe filled the temple, who smoke and, and, and the speaking made everything tremble and quake. His is the voice at, at which earth and heaven 
flee away. That is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is Jesus. That is the second person of the Holy Trinity. That's why John says at the beginning, no one has seen God. And he's speaking of the full essence of God. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him and declared Him. Every time you see somebody who sees a vision of God in the Old Testament, they are not seeing the Father and they are not seeing the triune God. You know whom they are seeing? They are seeing the pre-incarnate Christ. That is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ existed in the form of God. He was by very nature God. And He had that nature of God. And He did not consider that as something to be held on to, the privileges of His deity at all costs. But He emptied Himself. That is, He gave up the privileges of His deity without ever giving up His deity. He gave up the privileges of it and became like a man in the form of a man. Colossians chapter 1 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. And Colossians 2 verse 9 says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. I remember the very first time I saw this in the Gospel of John in the 12th chapter. It was after Bible college. In fact, it was after I had already taken John as a study in, in the course of, uh, of study at Bible college. And I was married and I was just uh, going through my own little study of John, reading through. And uh, at Bible college, I had been taught to defend the deity of Christ and I had enjoyed doing so with Mormons and Job's Witnesses and any, any other cult that would stumble up to my door. And I would always take him to John 1 and John 5 and John 8 and John 10 and John 17 and John 20, all of which are clear presentations of the deity of Christ. But one morning I was reading through John chapter 12 and I came across this passage and I went back and I read the quotations from Isaiah. I read Isaiah 53. I read Isaiah chapter 6. And then I continued on in uh, chapter uh, 12 verse 41. I turned back to the book of John, picked it up at verse 41. And I had just studied or thought through all of the implications of what Isaiah saw in chapter 6. And then I read John say these things Isaiah said when he, Isaiah, saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. And it was like a light came on. And I suddenly saw in this passage that the one that Isaiah saw in his vision when he was commissioned was none other than the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. And I walked on clouds for weeks after that. You, you cannot ask for a clearer passage that teaches on the deity of Christ than this passage here. I've never gotten into this with a Jehovah's Witness because this one always skips my mind. I'm always stuck in John 1, 1. But I'm looking forward to the day sometime when they stop in. I want to, I want to drop this one on them. Because I've shown you in the past, I have that little booklet, uh, Reasoning from the Scriptures. A little brown book that every Jehovah's Witness carries with them when they come to your door. They've got it in their purse. And if you ever come anywhere near stumping them, they'll pull out that little book, Reasoning from the Scriptures, and in the back is an index. And you can, they can flip to any passage that you're talking about, and then they take it to the page and they read to you what the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society's answer for that passage is. And I checked my reasoning from the Scriptures when I was preparing for this message. They don't have an answer for John chapter 12. So I want to drop this in the lap of a Jehovah's Witness and see what they do with it. Because I think it would be interesting. I, I want to, actually what I want to see more than anything else is them opening up reasoning from the Scriptures, and then I want to watch the blood drain out of their face when they realize that there, there's nothing in there about John 12 verse 41 attributing the vision of Isaiah to being seeing Jesus. What a, what a clear passage on the deity of Jesus Christ. That He is Yahweh. He is Yahweh. And so He is worthy of our worship. And He is worthy of our adoration because that is He is the one whom Isaiah saw when He was commissioned as a prophet. Now skeptics will say that the deity of Christ was an invention of a later time. That the apostles didn't believe this, the New Testament didn't teach this, and Jesus never claimed to be God. In fact, Bart Ehrman, who is probably the most well-known or renowned skeptic of our age because he's an apostate, Bart Ehrman's recent book, How Jesus Became God. Now think of all the hidden assumptions in that title, How Jesus Became God. And then the subtitle is The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. 
And you can tell just from the title and the subtitle what the gist of the book is. The gist of the book is that Jesus never claimed to be God and the disciples never understood Jesus claiming to be God. But over the course of many years, Christians began to worship Him and sort of deify Him. And so this is something that has been handed down to us over time. What a what a pile of baloney that is. Just a barrel of monkeys, that whole thing. What does John say? John says that Isaiah saw Jesus. John certainly did not believe that Jesus was a God-type figure or that Jesus was just merely a, a Jewish preacher from Galilee. John believed that Jesus Christ was the one whom Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Now just go back and contemplate that for a while. It has to blow your mind. Now that's the glory of Christ. Now let's look at this group of gutless cowards in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men more than the approval of God. Now as we've gone through the book of John, every time we see that there is a group of people who have quote-unquote, believed on Jesus. I have told you there are two types of belief in the Gospel of John. And you always have to look at the context to try and determine whether what John is describing is a group of people who have just outwardly embraced Jesus but not really been regenerated or saved. Whether their faith is just an outward intellectual faith, because we have examples of that in chapter 2, chapter 6, chapter 8. Or whether their faith is an actual embrace of Christ and all that He teaches, which is, in fact, accompanies regeneration and is indicative of a, of a new birth and of them being believers. Which type of faith is this? And I told you a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure exactly what John is describing here. I, I think I have come to the conclusion of which one of those two faith this is, and I'll give you my reasons why. Some have argued that the faith that is being described here is not genuine faith, but it's of this first kind. It's this uh, this intellectual faith, just an outward embrace. And they say, look, the proof is in the pudding. These men did not outwardly confess Jesus. These men believed on Him, but they were quiet about it. And so since they were cowards, and since these are men who would not profess Christ openly, these will not be men before whom uh, of whom Christ will confess before His Father. Because that's what He promised. If you deny Me before men, I will deny you before My Father. So they say, this this is this group of men. These men are only superficial believers, but they're really cowards. They don't want to own up to it. And so the fact that they are cowards is evidence that this is not true, genuine saving faith. Now to answer that, I would, I would ask you this question. What if people were to take some particularly weak moment in your Christian walk when you, when you cowered, when you cowered in fear instead of standing up boldly, and they were to judge the authenticity of your faith based upon a narrow period of time? One incident or two incidences. How would you fare? How would you fare if somebody just looked at a moment when you fell into a particular weakness and you cowered away and you were silent when you should have spoken and you wouldn't openly confess Christ before men and they were to judge the authenticity of your entire faith and life based upon that one moment? How, how well would you do? Anybody say that I've never done that? No, these, I think that these men are actual genuine believers just like Peter and the rest of the apostles would prove to be a true faith, a living faith, and a real faith, but it is weak at this point. It is new at this point, and and they fall victim to fear. Uh, we can understand that. It doesn't make it right. We can sympathize with it. It doesn't make it right. But it is a weak faith, even though I think it is a genuine faith. Now, I think that there are some textual reasons why I would suggest to you that these are actual, true believers. Let me give you a couple of them. The first argument that I would propose that these are actual, genuine believers is at the very first word of verse 42. Look at it. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. That is a strong adversative in the Greek language. It is, it is John's way of saying this. On the contrary, or in opposite to them, on the other hand, now since it beginning in verse 37 through 41, he has described the unbelief of a group of people, 
He says in verse 42, even though there is this unbelief, nevertheless, that is, on the other hand, contrary to them, some of these did believe. Now, if he's describing in this second group people whose faith was only a superficial faith and they weren't really saved, John would be saying there was a group who didn't believe, and on the other hand, there was a group who didn't believe. That doesn't make any sense. Verse 42 begins with nevertheless. In other words, John is saying in contrast to the unbelief of most of the Jewish leaders, which he describes in verses 37 to 41, we have a group of people who were also rulers of the Jews who did in fact believe. A second argument is that Leon Morris in his commentary on the Gospel of John says that the the Greek construction for it, believed on Jesus, is the construction for actual genuine saving faith in John. A third argument would be that we have examples of these very men elsewhere in Scripture. And I can think of two of them right off the top of my head. Uh, names that you'll be familiar with. Nicodemus. Remember in John chapter 3, there's no evidence that Nicodemus was not a believer in John 3 when he came and saw Jesus because Jesus told him, you have to be born again or you will never see the kingdom of heaven. There's no evidence that Nicodemus was saved after his initial conversation with Jesus. John doesn't give us any indication of that. We would assume or presume that Nicodemus needed some time to think that over and that he left there unconverted and unbelieving. But by the time we get to John chapter 7, Nicodemus is mentioned again. And Nicodemus is actually speaking favorably of Jesus in the council, defending Jesus and saying, look, we don't, we don't judge a man before we have a chance to try him and hear him out. But then we get to John chapter 19 and Nicodemus is a full-fledged believer. He comes out of the closet and goes to get the body of Jesus from Pilate. There's a transformation that happens with Nicodemus. I think at this juncture, Nicodemus, who was called the teacher of the Jews, was one of these Jews who believed, but he was silent about it. He was quiet about it. A second example would be Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was also a secret disciple. And probably Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea fit into this category of people who they were rulers of the Jews and they had genuine belief, but they they could not muster the strength or the courage, the boldness, to say anything about it in front of the rest of the Jewish leaders. Joseph of Arimathea, was, let me say his name again, Joseph of Arimathea is an interesting character We learn some things about him not only from John, but Matthew and Mark. And I want to read you the the few verses that speak of Joseph of Arimathea. In Matthew, it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself also become a disciple of Jesus. So we learn two things from Matthew. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. Well, three things. He was from Arimathea. And second, that he had also become a disciple of Jesus. Then Mark gives us a few more details. In Mark chapter 15, Joseph of Arimathea came a prominent member of the council. So Joseph of Arimathea is a prominent member of this Jewish council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? After the death of Jesus, what did Joseph of Arimathea have to do? All right, I can do this. I can do it. I can do it. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. He had to gather up the courage to go in and ask for the body of Jesus. And the implication in Mark is that prior to that, he had been what? He had been a believer, but that he had been a coward. And then in John chapter 19, John chapter 19, verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, I think, are in this group. They are small, comparatively speaking. They are small in number, but they are nonetheless genuine believers, but absolutely silent about it. Absolutely silent about it. We understand, do we not, that a Christian, particularly a new Christian, however zealous they might be and however convinced they might be, can be cowered into fear through the forces around them that might want to keep them silent. You can understand why Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would be quiet. We can understand why that would be. These men had a lot to lose. 
These men were, these men sat in the meetings while they plotted the death of Jesus and Lazarus. These men knew that their peers were willing to kill innocent men to maintain their power. And they sat, and they sat in silence. So verse 42. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. So there is a fear factor. They believe in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. They are afraid of the Pharisees themselves. And that's an indication of the type of power that the Pharisees had over the people. Not only socially and culturally, but ecclesiastically. These were men who had the power with a stroke of a pen or a simple word to declare somebody as being excommunicated or kicked out of the synagogue. And so the people, the, the people lived in fear of their leadership. They never wanted to say anything which might, which might provoke the leadership because the leadership would come down and do so with a heavy hand. We have indications of this fear that the people had. Way back in John chapter 7, it says, When Jesus came up to the Feast of Tabernacles, yet no one was speaking openly for Him, or of Him, that is of Jesus, for fear of the Jews. People were talking, but they were talking quietly in the corners of the temple, in the corners of the marketplace, but they weren't saying anything openly because they didn't want anything they say to be misconstrued as speaking positively of Jesus. Then we have another example of how people feared the Jews in John chapter 9 when the man was born blind. You remember that? And they called him in. Then they called his parents in and said to his parents, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? Tell us then, how does he now see? And what does his parents do? Oh, here comes a bus. Throw the son underneath the bus. We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. And John says they said this because they feared the Jews. Because the Jews had already determined that if anybody confessed Jesus to be the Christ, they were to be kicked out of the synagogue. And so they would they would literally put them out of the synagogue. And in that culture, that meant the loss of everything. And that's exactly what they, in fact, did to the man who was born blind. And he, he called them on the carpet in, in an act of incredible boldness in his belief in Jesus as the Messiah. He called the Jewish leaders on the carpet and they kicked him out of the synagogue. Now, on the other side of that spectrum, contrast the response of the man born blind with the response of these Pharisees, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Contrast their response. The man born blind, what did he do? He just came right out in the open and said, look, I believe in him. And they kicked him out of the synagogue. And what did he have to lose? This is another reminder, by the way, that the more you have, the more you have to lose in becoming a Christian. Sometimes riches and wealth and power and honor and those things can end up being, as John Calvin described it, golden shackles that shackle us in our sin. We don't want to give those things up. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had everything to lose. All of their power, all of their riches, all of their wealth, all of their associations, everything. They had all to lose and they were quiet. The man who was born blind, everybody assumed that he was born blind because either he or his parents had sinned. And so he was already an outcast. He had nothing. He couldn't be employed. He lived as a beggar off of whatever anybody gave him. You look at the man born blind and so say, what did he have? The answer is nothing. He had nothing. And so since he had nothing, he had nothing to lose. And they said, we'll kick you out of synagogue. I'm already unwelcome. What do I care? So I'll give you the truth. But when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were faced with the same punishment, what did they do? They had so much to lose. So much to lose. And so they were silent when they should have spoken. So they feared, these men feared the Jews because they feared being excommunicated from the synagogue. Interestingly, Matthew Henry says this, they feared being put out of the synagogue. They thought that that would be a disgrace and a damage to them as if it would do them any harm to be expelled from a synagogue that had made itself a synagogue of Satan and from which God Himself was already departing. That's profound. They were fearing being put out of a, a club, a group, an association that God Himself had already rejected. God had departed from this and they feared being put out of that. And the same is true of you and I today. There are, there are thousands of associations and groups and clubs and people groups and, and all of that, circles in which we swim, 
There are thousands of those that we fear being put out of today. And we can sometimes value our inclusion into those groups every bit as much as the Jews, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, valued being included in the synagogue. Take high school, for instance. You live your life, high schoolers. You live your life like a sycophant, constantly walking around seeking the approval of people who mean absolutely nothing. And I'm not saying this is just of you. Four years I did this. You walk around seeking the approval of people who mean absolutely nothing. And listen, if you get to your 10th year anniversary, and I passed up two of those now, 10 and 20, I'm gone. I didn't go to either one of them. If you get to your 10th year anniversary and you still care what those people think of you, you have not yet grown up. You are still the naive fool that you were in high school. What, what do these people matter? What do these people matter? High school students? Seriously? But who wants to be on the outside of that? And the societal pressure that is inflicted upon kids from externally to conform or to be kicked out is unbelievable. And if, if you don't think so, you just don't remember what it was like being in high school. That or you were like the man born blind. You were already on the outside and you just didn't care. But most high schoolers, all of them, walk around trying to seek the approval of everybody else for their for their own gain. And work is the same way. Who wants to be the pariah at work? Who wants to be the guy sitting at the Christmas table at the table all by himself at the at the company Christmas party or the company picnic? You're off by yourself on your own little blanket. Nobody will talk to you because they know that you're the Jesus freak. And every time they bring up anything, you somehow bring Jesus into the conversation. You're committed to the gospel, and nobody wants to be the pariah. Nobody wants to be the person that is untouchable, the, the social leper. Nobody wants to be that. You want to do that at family, right? You don't want to do this with family. Family's another circle that we always seek inclusion into. You got the obnoxious uncle and the bombastic cousin, and they show up every Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they sit there and they berate everything that you hold value to, and they blaspheme the name of Christ, and nobody, nobody wants to say anything because, after all, Thanksgiving and Christmas are already awkward enough with these people. Why would we want to make it even more awkward? And we don't want to be excluded by the obnoxious uncle and the bombastic cousin. And so we just put up with it and we say nothing. And we're silent when we should speak. And the same is true in, in almost every social circle that we can think of or imagine. Our, our neighbors, nobody wants to be the one guy in the block that nobody wants to invite the neighborhood party. But they have to invite you because it's, it's awkward if you're like the only one staying home that Saturday. So they have to invite you, but they don't want to. Nobody wants to be that. We have these social structures that we are part of, that we desire to be part of so much that we are willing to exchange the praise of God for the praise of men. Societal structures that we don't want to be excommunicated from because we don't want to lose these things because they're friends that we like or they're co-workers that we like or we don't want to be on the outside and so we seek to be accepted by them. And just that pressure itself is enough to make us cower in fear when instead we should be as bold as a lion and say what needs to be said. So I'm assuming that we can all somewhat relate to this group of people in verses 42 and 43 who were quiet when they should have spoken. And really, John then diagnoses the heart of the issue in verse 43. Oh, let me Before I go on to that, I've given you some personal examples. Let me give to you some examples that are a bit broader. Because just as this is true in terms of, of individual Christians, the, the little small circles that you swim in, this is also true of evangelicalism as a whole. The church, and I'm speaking just broadly here, the church does not want to be seen on the outside of academia. And so we, evangelical leaders find ways of caving on issues like, what, what would the, what would the universities think or the media think if they found out that, that we think evolution is the stupidest lie ever told or believed by anybody in the history of mankind? What would they think? And if we don't embrace billions of years, what will they think? They'll think we're nuts if we believe God created everything in six 24-hour days just about 6,000 years ago. 
they'll think we're crazy. So we'll cave on that. And the pressure is already here on the church to cave on the issue of human sexuality. It's already here. Just this last week in the news, the lead singer of a Christian band, Jars of Clay, came out in favor of gay, of gay marriage, same-sex marriage. The dominoes are falling. And Christians, you and I are going to have to decide which side of this we are going to fall on and whether we are going to seek after the approval of men and the culture and the entertainment industry and the government and the politicians and our friends and our family or whether we are going to remain faithful and have the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because those, those two, you can never have both of them. You can please the world or you can please the Lord, but you cannot please both of them at the same time. And he who makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God because God has rejected the world. He has rejected it. He has left that. It is doomed. It will be punished. It will be destroyed. It will pass away. It will mean absolutely nothing. But the praise and glory and and approval of God will last forever. You have to choose which one of those you want. Something that will last you 60 years or something that will last you for eternity. For eternity. Now John diagnoses the heart of the issue. It's in verse 43. The heart of the issue is that they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And all of us like the approval of men. I said this at the beginning. There's something inside of us that loves to be told, look, you are, you are the bee's knees. You are the best thing since sliced bread. You are just great. You're one of those, you're one of those fun Christians. You, you don't judge people. You, you're not intolerant. You're not bigoted. You're not sexist. You're not racist. And you're just one of those fun Christians. You never make any moral judgments. You're a blast to hang around. In fact, I could hang around you for, for months and years and I wouldn't even know you're a Christian. And that's how great of a guy you are. That's what we all like to hear. We all like to hear how great we are. And we love to be accepted and approved by men. Nobody wants to be the outcast. Nobody does. And so these men loved the approval that they get from men, and they valued that more than they valued the approval that can only come from God. And so, consciously or unconsciously, they made a choice. Which one of these is more valuable? That men speak highly of me, or that God speaks highly of me? And they chose in that moment that it was better to have the men speak highly of them than it was to have God speak highly of them. And every concession and every compromise and every capitulation to the culture that the evangelical church is making today has come about because we love the praise of men more than we love the praise of God. That is what it all boils down to. Why is it that you think denominations are ordaining women into positions of pastoral ministry? Why do you think that is happening? Do you think that's happening because they, they really take seriously 1 Timothy chapter 3? Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, the, the passages on elders in the New Testament. Do you think it's because they really take seriously 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 11? No, it's not. They're man-pleasers. That's what it is. They don't want to be on the, they don't want to be on the back end of history. They don't want to hit history. They don't want to be back there having everybody think that they come from the 1500s. We want to be hip, man. We want to be contemporary, relevant. We need to be the cutting edge of everything, every decision. Why is it that you think that evangelicals right now or denominations, once evangelical, sorry, once evangelical denominations or ordaining homosexual men to positions of pastoral ministry? Why is that? Think it's because they take God's word seriously? No, they're man pleasers. That's all it is. They want to be in the cutting edge of culture. They want to be hip and relevant. They don't want people to think ill of them. They want the approval of the media, the talking heads. They want the approval of the government. They want the approval of all of these, all these cultural institutions. They don't want anybody being rejected. They don't want to be rejected by anybody. Why is it that you think that Christians are just denying and evangelical seminaries and Bible colleges and churches and denominations are denying the book of Genesis? Young earth creationism. Why do you think that they're adopting the idea that there was no real historical Adam or adopting theistic evolution or embracing Darwinism 
Why is that? Do you think it's because they're committed to a thorough exegesis of Genesis 1 to 11? No, they're man pleasers. Nobody wants to be on the outside of academia. Just after the debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye, uh, Pat Robertson came out, our great evangelical spokesman. Pat Robertson came out and he mocked Ken Ham and said that belief in a young earth creationism, belief in young earth creationism, a young earth and a young universe, makes us look silly. Makes us evangelicals look silly. Am I the only one who catches the irony of that? Pat Robertson complaining that somebody else makes evangelicalism look silly? Really? Pat Robertson? This is the self-appointed leader of the evangelical movement? This is the man who thinks that God speaks to him in his own little voice, and at the end of every year, he goes away privately by himself to get God's revelation of what's going to happen in the coming year, most of which is bogus and never comes to pass, because he's not a true prophet. He's a false prophet. After all, speaking in the name of God and not having what you say is going to come to pass, not come to, or come to pass, not come to pass, if that doesn't indicate a false prophet, then there is no such thing as a false prophet. Yeah. I think evangelical's problem is that we have too many Ken Hams and not enough Pat Robertsons. You, you got that? It's, it's men like that that make us look silly. And how far do you take that? Belief in a resurrection makes us look silly. The belief that God became a man makes us look silly. What, what do you not jettison if your only standard is what makes me look silly in the eyes of the world? You really want to curry favor with a bunch of people who have rejected Scripture? They reject everything in Scripture. So what do we start, what do we start hitting the eject button on? Every precious doctrine of the Christian faith, just so we can gain the favor and the approval of men who hate our king? How wicked is that? That's treachery. That's treason. What type of insanity is it that seeks to curry favor with people who hate our king? That's just insanity. And the whole seeker-sensitive movement? I mean, I could go on. I'm just giving you a few examples. The whole seeker-sensitive movement is nothing more than a well-camouflaged attempt to seek and curry the favor of the world. That's all it is. Jettison sound doctrine, jettison preaching, jettison anything that might offend, and just curry favor with the world. And, and, and the evangelical movement is plagued, plagued by a celebrity culture where pastors think that the, the mark of a successful ministry is how well the world speaks of them, where they do not consider it a shame to be invited to this president's inauguration. They consider that an honor. Listen, if the president of the United States ever calls me up and says, will you come and pray at my inauguration? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to submit my resignation right now. I'm shutting the whole thing down. I'm done because I've obviously done something wrong if people who hate the light love our church. If people who hate the light love us, we are pathetically on the wrong side of God's favor. You can't carry curry favor with the world like that. And the celebrity culture where pastors think more of what CNN or Piers Morgan or Larry King or a talking head thinks of them than standing for the truth of Scripture. Friends, this love for men and what men think of us is strangling Christianity in this culture and in this country. The fear of man is death to the fear of God, and the fear of God is the antidote to the fear of man. So what do we do? We've diagnosed, we've seen the problem, we, we all recognize that it is, and you just watch, you will see thousands of examples of this every day in the lives of people and in the lives of our culture and the church all around you. What do we do with it? Let me suggest to you two things from our text uh, in closing. Number one, we have to first of all rightly diagnose the cause of this fear. We have to rightly diagnose the cause of the fear. When, when I want to stand up or I should stand up, and, and I begin to fear or tremble, I should stop right then and say, what, what's going on here? And then I diagnose it. Here's the problem. It's verse 43. I'm, I'm desiring the approval of this man or woman or this group more than I'm desiring the approval of God. That's really the heart of the issue. That's what makes me fearful. That's what makes me tremble. That's what makes me cower and not say something. I'm desiring the approval of this man 
more than the approval of God. Now let's call that what it is. That is sin because that is the sin of idolatry. When I desire or want and value the approval of man more than God, I am saying God is small and man is big. And I desire this, His approval, His approval is more valuable to me than God's approval. And when I do that, I am taking God and I am saying He is down here and this man is up here. And so what He thinks of me is more important than what God thinks of me. That is idolatry. At any point in time when I value what somebody else thinks more than what God thinks, I am committing the sin of idolatry. Now here's the good news. The good news is that the Gospel saves idolaters. And so I can go to the Gospel and I can say, I am an idolater. I have done this my entire life. Everybody here is an idolater. All of us have committed the sin of idolatry. But the Gospel is offered to save and redeem idolaters. So there is forgiveness for that, but I need to recognize what it is. I am committing the sin of idolatry. Second, we need to view my love, our love for approval from men in the light of the glory of Christ. And this brings us back to verse 41. And this is why I think that there is somewhat of a, of a connection between the glory of Christ and these gutless cowards. We need to view our desire for approval before men in light of the glory of Christ. So we go back to verse 41 and we say, okay, hold on. Who is the one whose approval I should be seeking and desiring? It is the one at whose voice heaven and earth flees away. It is the one whose glory fills this earth. It is the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the whom the angels worship. The angels bow before Him and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He is the one whose approval we should be seeking. So anytime the obnoxious uncle or the family member or the schoolmate or whoever it is, you, you, you are faced with the temptation to be fearful in their presence, here's what you need to do. You need to step back, diagnose it, and say it is idolatry, and then say, okay, now, here's my choice. The glory of Christ or this worm's approval. Which will I choose? The glory of Christ or His approval. I put my obnoxious uncle next to the glory of Christ, and guess who wins? Every time. I eventually have to come back to who is it whose glory I should be after? Whose approval should I be seeking? And it always comes back to Christ. And so we have to see our light of our, our desire for men's approval in the light of the magnificent glory of Christ that we get a picture of in this passage and in verse 41. And, and we put those up against each other. Can can you imagine Isaiah seeing what he saw, having that experience? I mean, and literally coming undone, just undone, unable to stand, unable hardly to talk. The only thing he can do is just confess his sin. Can you imagine that? And then the Lord saying, Isaiah, I want you to go preach on my behalf, give people my word. Can you imagine Isaiah then standing up and saying, okay, first thing I need to do is I need to be well thought of in the eyes of the leaders of this nation. And I need to be well thought of in the eyes of my fellow Jews. In fact, I'm going to go out and I'm going to take the message and I'm going to, I'm going to give it in such a way as to curry their favor. Because I really want them to think positively with the message and find some way of communicating this that won't offend them. Do you think Isaiah would do that? No, he would have been completely overcome with the glory of Christ. And that is what you and I need to do. In order to fear God, we must have a glimpse of the glory of Christ. What would you think of a man who constantly pursued the favor and approval of people who attacked his wife, slandered his wife, lied about his wife, blasphemed his wife, and sought the destruction of his wife. What would you say of such a man? What would you say of a woman who constantly wanted and sought the approval of a group of people who hated her husband and sought his downfall and his overthrow and everything that they did? What would you think of such a person? You'd say that, that individual is a moral midget. And you would be right. But the same could be said of the individual 
who seeks the approval from people who hate and are opposed to our most gracious Redeemer and King. Moral midgets. Because we simply do not understand the glory of Christ and what that means for our our fear of man, which is nothing more than idolatry. And so may God grant us the courage to stand and to not fear men, but to fear God and God alone. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for the many blessings that you have poured out upon us. We are undeserving of all of them. We are undeserving even to be called by your name, and yet you are not ashamed to call us brethren. We pray that you would grant to us as your people conformity to the image of Christ and boldness in our speech and our witness and our testimony for the glory of your Son. We desire that these things may seek deep down into our hearts and that we may never seek the approval of men over your approval. Keep us captivated by the glory and the love of Christ that we may fear him and fear you in all that we do. And that will be the antidote and the cure for the fear of man. May we never cower away from you and lose a reward that we might have had simply because we are ashamed of you. Give us boldness in that, we pray. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.